0: Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. On behalf of the Saturday Night Live at Pine Lake speaker meeting, please help help me welcome tonight's speaker, pat from palm desert california as she expresses her experience strength and hope hi everybody my name is pat i'm an alcoholic and i'm glad to be here glad to be sober that's distracting um i love alcoholics anonymous I, i have some old friends in this room tonight and that's kind of fun um it's always nice to see pe- old friends. I love uh, being sober. I want to thank you for inviting me to do this. It's an honor and a privilege. Uh, people were not inviting me to go anywhere uh, before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, I was not a welcome guest. Uh, and so it's kind of kind of cool. Every time I get a phone call, you know, inviting me to do something, I think, wow, that's that's amazing. Then the time comes, and I then I, I look at the weather. I live in the desert. I look at the weather. And I think I don't want to go do that, you know. But but I do it because I'm asked. I was taught when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous that you say yes to an AA request. And so um, that's what I've been trying to do for the last um, 41 years. And I'm happy to be here. I started drinking when I was uh, 13. I was at a party that night. Uh, people were drinking. And I drank because I wanted to fit in. I didn't have any strong feelings about drinking or not drinking. I just wanted those people to like me. And so I uh, put my hand out and I took the drink. It happened to be rum and coke. And I drank it. And I don't know, I drank, I drank another one. I don't know how much I drank. But magic happened to me that night. You know, I, uh, I changed that night. Uh, when I drank that alcohol at some point, uh, the way I felt completely shifted. I've always described myself as being uh, incredibly shy. Uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, you call things by different names. You call that self ob- self-obsession. self I actually prefer shy because it sort of implies I can't help it, you know, but uh, <laughs> self-obsession is what it is. I think about me all the time, how do I look? how do I sound? what are you thinking about me and so I'm at this party I drink this rum and coke and it went away. What a miracle. Uh, I, a rela- I I think I relaxed for the first time in my life that night. I um, talked to people, said funny things that made people laugh. I felt great I danced, I felt like the best dancer there. It was magic now I blacked out, I passed out I woke up in bed the next morning with a marine that I didn't know. That was a lot more than I meant to do, <laughs> you know i just uh, to have a good time here and uh, I felt bad the next day. I was embarrassed and ashamed my the you know my thirteen year old girlfriends were not behaving this way and and I felt um embarrassed and ashamed, and I was terrified I'd get pregnant i mean I had bad feelings about that night, but I drank again at the very next possible opportunity without a second thought. I was uh evidently willing to pay the price. To drink from the gate. I didn't think any of it through. You know, it's funny sometimes when I'm talking, it sounds like I had this great wisdom and insight into my life. Believe me, I didn't have it when it was happening. You know, that all came after I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and really after I started sponsoring women and really seeing my myself in them. But anyway, I um, so I'm 13, and I I'm now gonna I start drinking at every possible opportunity, which at first wasn't that often. I mean, when you're 13, it's hard to to get alcohol, but, and I don't ever remember asking anybody for this information, but somehow I became possessed of the knowledge of the one liquor store in Newport Beach where I grew up that would sell to minors out the back door. Somehow I came in possession of a, of an ID that said I was, I don't know, 35 or something. And, um, you know, and now I'm, I'm hanging around with a whole different set of people and my life is changing. We used to, um, when I was 13 and 14 we so i lived in Newport Beach and um Long Beach was a i don't know how far up the road a a bus ride up the road and um the uh they had the naval base was there and they had the, this thing called the Long Beach Pike which is like a amusement park where sailors hung out and tattoo parlors and that you know you kind of can visualize and Uh, So, I don't know how we discovered this fun place, but we did, and so we would get on the bus and and go up to to Long Beach and pick up sailors because they were old enough to buy booze, and, you know, I think about that now, and I think that the potential for something really terrible to have happened to me is huge, Um, you know, but I never thought of any of that. I just drank, you know. I got myself in a lot of trouble, um, but I continued to drink. I... um, You know, I, uh, my behavior when I drink, that first night when I drank and woke up with that Marine, that kind of set the tone for what my life was going to be like. I I like to describe it as that I am a friendly girl. (laughs) And so I developed this reputation in high school for being a friendly girl. And, you know, that's not really how I wanted people to think of me. And, and, uh. You know, I knew that people were talking about me, and and it was embarrassing. You know, it was humiliating. But, but I don't remember ever thinking maybe I shouldn't drink. I don't ever remember that thought coming in my head during during that time. I um, I got married when I was 18 because um, he asked. I have searched my heart over the years, hoping there was a better reason in there, but there just isn't. Um, he was a perfectly nice um, boy and uh, deserved a lot better than what he got. You know, I, I said for years from podiums, I said, you know, we were, we should never have gotten... We were only married for six months. We And I've said for years, we should never have gotten married. We should never have had a, had a second date. We were too young. Uh, the truth of the matter is, I don't think he was too young. The truth of the matter is, I needed to drink more than I needed to be married to him Uh, I needed to drink more than we were ever going to be drinking in that marriage because we were a young married couple we had no money and so we couldn't afford to drink much and I I didn't know any of that until years into sobriety did I see that clearly Um, and so but so I left him and I left him with very little uh, explanation Uh, he didn't know what had happened and I couldn't give him an explanation because I didn't have one uh, you know, I so I got married to him when I was 18. I got divorced when I was 18 and a half. I got sober when I was 30, and uh, I didn't see him, you know, in that period, interim period. And then I was sober just a little while, and I saw him, and I thought, wow, this is pretty crazy. Here I am, sober and Alcoholics Anonymous, and God kind of drops this guy in my path. Um, you know, it's an opportunity to make amends. This is cool. And then my next thought was, you know, I'm not actually sober very long, and I'm not to that step yet. And I let that opportunity pass by. That was 41 years ago, and I haven't seen her from that day to this. I always like to say that, tell that little story when I talk because um, it's an opportunity to make amends that I may never get again. You know, uh, I hope that uh, that I get a sh- uh, another shot at it, uh, but I might not. You know, and that's too bad. It's my strong recommendation if opportunities to make amends present themselves you do it of course with your sponsor's direction you know i've i've had sponsees who have had some really kind of crazy ideas about making amends like to drug dealers and stuff you know i mean i you know you really need to talk to your sponsor about this stuff anyway i um so I got divorced and I moved up to LA, which is like 50 miles up the road, and and I uh, got a job and an apartment. I'm 19 years old now, I guess, and and uh, I started drinking every single day. It was the, really the first time in my life that I was without some kind of supervision, either by my parents or, or this husband, you know. And now I'm alone, and I've got this ID that I can drink, and and I drank, and. Uh, my first job uh, in L.A. was uh, as a secretary for a trucking company. I'm a really good secretary. I had these really great skills, but um, but I'd never had a job. And, you know, when you're young, it's hard to get that first job. So my father was vice president of a trucking company, so I asked him would he give me a job. Uh, he was reluctant. Uh, he said, I just don't think it's a great idea to hire a family member, but he had a certain amount of guilt because he had divorced my mother, so he gave in much to his uh, regret, I'm sure. So I went to work for this trucking company and I behaved there exactly the way I'd behaved in high school, which is to say, before I left that job, I knew most of those truck drivers in the biblical sense, let's say, and uh, (laughs) caused my father a lot of embarrassment, a lot of embarrassment there. He called me one day to try to talk to me about my behavior. And, you know, I can't even look at this behavior myself. I, I can't think about it. I it's I, I can't, and I certainly cannot talk to my father about it. So I said some really terrible things to him on the phone that day just to get him to get off the phone because I, I couldn't, I was so uncomfortable. The end result of that conversation is we did not speak again until I got sober and alcohol, except like at weddings and funerals, until I got sober and Alcoholics Anonymous and made amends to him. It was the first amends I made. I remember my sponsor said when I made my amends list, I know I'm jumping around, I'm sorry, but uh, when I made my uh, amends list, she said, now, which one on this do you think would be the the easiest one to do? And I said, oh, hands down, my dad, because he's a very spiritual kind of guy, and it would whatever I say or try to do would be well-received. And she said, well, let's start with that one then. It's good to get one, you know, like a positive one under your belt before you tackle um you know the really really difficult ones and and even that one was so hard but it was very well received and and because of that you know we had a really good relationship up until the time he died a, f- a few years ago all because of you because you you taught me how to do these things you know um so i left that job and i went on to another job and i can kind of describe my my working career as you know i get a job I'm a really good secretary so I never have any trouble getting a job and when I'm new on the job I'm nervous and I want to make a good impression so I keep my drinking separate for a while and a little time goes by a month two three whatever and 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 I can tell that they're really pleased with my work that I'm you know I'm doing great here and then I relax and that's not good you know um now I'm drinking at lunch and now I'm drinking after work with the boss and the clients and the coworkers. and now I'm sleeping with half of them, or their spouse, I don't care, you know, and <laughs> so I create this kind of ugly mess at this company, and I have to leave, you know, and I, um, when I left, I left, I mean, like, I'm working here, and I'm doing all that with you, my coworkers, and and now I'm left. It's like you're dead. I never see you again. Now I'm here with my new my new family. And, and you know, I could last just about a year on a job, and then I'd have to move on. You know, there's that 20 questions when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and there's a, a question on there, have you ever lost a job because of drinking? And I said, no, um, which was true. I had never been fired, but I quit every job I ever had beca- behind drinking because of something that had happened behind drinking. I've quit jobs after office Christmas parties with, without going back to clean out my desk because I knew I could not face those people in the light of day after what happened last night. Um, I, here's how I drank. I went out with my boss and my coworkers one night and we were bar hopping around downtown LA and we were all drunk, I think. Um, LAUGHTER I've said that for years, we were all drunk, I I assumed they were drunk, but whatever, I was certainly drunk, I got up to, um, I excused myself, we were, the stage was like here, and we were sitting at this table right in front, and maybe eight or ten of us in our group, and I excused myself from the table to go to the ladies room, which was down the hall behind the stage, and I um, bumped into the owner of the bar in the hallway, and made some sort of derogatory remarks about the caliber of his entertainment. And he said something along the lines of, if you think you're such hot stuff, why don't you uh, you know, audition? So here we are at this strip joint. I'm my boss and my co-workers and the everybody's at the table. I've gone to the ladies' room. I've gone to the ladies' room dressed sort of like I'm dressed tonight. Now I appear on the stage essentially dressed in nothing. And there was that moment when my boss's eye and mine met, when he realized who that was up there. Seriously, if I live to be 120, I'll never forget the look on his face, ever. It was a moment. It was really a moment. Um, when I sobered up the next day, I was kind of appalled at what I had done. I mean, a strip joint, that's pretty bad. You know? But it gave me ideas. Um, this is when go-go dancing was kind of a thing. Now, actually, I don't know if go-go dancing ever was a thing. It was in my crowd, but so uh, in my mind's eye, I, I thought go-go dancing is classier than stripping. Um, I'm here to tell you it's not, but I convinced myself at the time that it was. And so I went and actually got a paid job as a, go- as a go-go dancer. Um, at the time, you know, all the nice clubs on Sunset Strip had go-go dancers. Uh, I did not work there. Uh, <laughs> uh, my first paid job as a dancer was in a club on Whittier Boulevard in East Los Angeles. I never met anybody there who spoke English. I have no idea how I got the job or even what I was doing there. But I uh, got the job, and I worked there for a while, and then I moved uptown. Uh, I say uptown because the next place, um, sp- they spoke English. Uh, LAUGHTER but it was actually on the outskirts of Chinatown and downtown LA, which is another way of saying it was on the outskirts of Skid Row, because they kind of come together there. And uh, so I was working there at uh, Nick's as, as a dancer, and uh, I met the man who was to become my second husband. He was a customer who clearly recognized talent, and I can't, I can't even say it with a straight face. Okay? <laughs> The, the kind of clubs I worked in, dancing ability wasn't even necessarily a requirement, you know. I mean, it just, they were, they were some tacky places. Anyway, so I met, he's like the most unsuitable man in the state of California. So, of course, we moved right in together and and um, eventually got married. We had this really romantic uh, wedding in Las Vegas by a judge who was wearing his bedroom slippers. Uh, you know, it's something to remember. I don't, we have no pictures of that day, sadly, <laughs> Uh, So now I'm married, but I am a full-blown alcoholic, and I'm uh, still behaving like I'm single. Let's put it that way. Um, So we had a lot of trouble in that marriage, as you might guess, uh, all caused by my behavior. He drank. I, I mean, I met him in a bar, after all, but but it, he didn't drink as much as I did, and and now that we're married, it wasn't even so much my drinking, but my behavior behind drinking got to be this big topic of conversation in our house, and we had a lot of trouble. Uh, he was a gambler, amongst other things, and so he was gone a lot at night, uh, which was by now just fine with me. Uh, you know, he would go off to the racetrack or poker games, wherever gamblers go, and, uh, and I would... Uh, Uh, you know, sit in a rocking chair in my living room in a purple flannel bathrobe and drink until I passed out. Uh, I hated him. I hated my job. I hated everything about my life. But uh, I had no idea that it could ever change. I I turned into one of those pathetic people who make phone calls in the middle of the night. Um, You can always spot them. (laughs) People smile or (laughs) nod their heads when you say that. Uh, My personal favorite was a boyfriend I had when I was 12. Um, (laughs) Gee, I wonder where Danny is these days. So, of course, I have no idea where Danny might be living these days. So, uh, And you know if you're a phone caller if you're an Al-Anon, these calls don't come at 7.30 in the evening. It's, you know, 2 or 3 in the morning. And So I wake up a number of people, and I found him. And uh, I'm pretty sure he and his wife were happy to hear from me. I don't, maybe not. My life was so pathetic. I started getting arrested, and... Um, I couldn't believe this was happening to me. I'm a nice girl from Newport Beach. I had uh, gone to my parents' house for dinner on Thanksgiving night, and uh, my husband hadn't been invited. Did I mention that my family was unhappy about this marriage? Uh, They actually were so unhappy they never met him. Uh, So uh, I had gone to my parents' house for Thanksgiving dinner. He He was a chef, and the restaurant he worked for in Beverly Hills... His boss had a party for all of the employees in Beverly Hills, so he went to that. So I'm at my parents' house. They were big drinkers, and so I got drunk at my parents' house, and, and uh, I'm driving home on Thanksgiving night, and I needed a pack of cigarettes, and where else would you stop but in a bar to buy a pack of cigarettes? I mean, come on. Everybody knows, everybody in this room, that's where you would stop. And so I uh, went into this bar on Main Street in downtown L.A., which is Skid Row. It's not the outskirts. It's Skid Row. And I don't know why I picked that particular place, but I did. And I went in and, uh, you know, bought my cigarettes and some drinks and uh, came out of the bar sometime later and I got arrested uh, for common drunk. I didn't even make it to my car. I just got arrested for common drunk on Main Street. And they took me to Sybil Brand, which was the women's institution at the time. And that's a scary place let me just say I was in way 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 over my head and uh, uh, sobering up quickly and I remembered where my husband was so I called uh, his boss's house and uh, the boss's wife answered the phone and I identified myself and told her I was in jail could she have my husband come bail me out it did not occur to me it would have been nicer to ask to speak directly to him uh, to deliver that happy news um My next arrest was in Tijuana for obscene dancing, and that's all I'm saying about that. <laughs> but you get the idea. You get the idea that I, it would be safe to sum it up to say I was not drinking like a lady, okay? Uh, th- so uh, so now my life has pretty much come to... I, I went through this, uh, what I call my mariachi phase. I, uh, I discovered... I don't even know how I found this place. I'm living in Los Angeles. I find this bar in San Juan Capistrano, which is... At the time, it's now like a four-hour drive, but at the time it was like a two, one one-and-a-half, two-hour drive away. However I discovered this, I don't know, but they had a mariachi band there on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights. They um, played there each night, and they stayed in the local motel, and then on Sunday night when they finished, the, you know, the evening, they drove home to Tijuana, presumably to their wives and many children. I don't know because none of them spoke English, but I'm just guessing. And let me just say that most of them were about my age now. I'm, I don't know, 22 or something at the time. So I discovered this place and I'm now going there every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night. Uh, I, uh, the first thing I would do is I would go in and I would hand the bartender my purse who would put it behind the bar. Everybody knew me. Uh, he'd put it behind the bar because you know how we are. We're prone to losing things. And, and I would sit at the bar. There was a, There were tables and there was a little dance floor where the patrons of the bar could dance and And uh, so I'd sit at the bar and drink and request those sad songs, you know, and, and then at some point in the evening, one of these mariachi players would put his instrument down and ask me to dance, and I can remember moving around the dance floor with this guy thinking that all of you, the other people in the bar, are looking at me with awe and admiration, thinking I must be somebody because I know the band. I mean, this is not like the Rolling Stones or anything, you know what I'm saying here? Uh... I used to say I was kind of like a groupie to them. I wasn't kind of like a groupie. I let's just say I knew the band. I knew the entire band. Okay. So I went there every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night. For I don't. You can see why I didn't want my mother to come hear me talk, right? You get it now. <laughs> so I. Um, we had this conversation at dinner. Uh, so I, um, I. I you know at some point I stopped going there. I don't know why. I drank a lot in blackouts, and I'm actually kind of grateful for it. I remember enough Uh, but something must have happened by even my diminishing standards that was so terrible that I could no longer go there Um, I was sober about I don't know 10 years maybe 12 years and I got asked to speak at a meeting near there and I got down to the area and I had a lot of time to kill I was really early had a lot of time to kill and I thought I wonder if that place is still there and I drove around and I I found it and it was dark it was nighttime and I parked across the street just stayed in my car And I could sort of see into the, you know, the crack of the door there a little bit. I just sat in my car thinking about that time. Um, And I couldn't remember one happy time in there. I couldn't remember one really great fun night or even really one good laugh or one good anything. Every memory I could come up with from that place was kind of awful, you know, uh, just awful. And yet I went there every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night for the better part of a year. You know, that's what alcoholism does to me. So anyway, so now I'm, you know, now I'm pretty much in my purple flannel bathrobe every night. My husband's gone every night, and, and, I'm, and I'm drunk, and I'm crazy, and I, and I know my life is never going to change. I remember one hot summer morning watching, we lived in a second-floor apartment, I could, from where I sat in my chair... I could see into the neighbor's yard. They were a young couple about my age, which was probably late 20s at the time. And they had two small children. And the, they were sitting. It was a really hot day. And they were, the parents were sitting on the porch steps. And the kids were running back and forth in the sprinklers laughing. And you know how kids do. And I was drunk up there in my apartment watching them. And I cried because that's how I meant to be living my life. And I don't know how, how this happened to me. But I knew that day it was never going to change because by then I had already been trying not to drink. I'm not a stupid woman. Uh, It was clear even to me by now that if I continued to drink the way I was drinking, nothing good was ever going to happen in my life. And so I had decided to stop drinking, but I couldn't do it you know, I'd get up in the morning filled with firm resolve. Let me just say, I'm not bouncing back quite so fast in the mornings anymore either. So I get up filled with firm resolve. I'm not going to drink today. I am not going to drink today. And I drive off to work and this little tiny job because now my career is, you know, let's just say not skyrocketed. Um, And I drive off to this little tiny job and I uh, would think I'm I'm not, you know, I'm going to go back to college and finish my education. I'm going to, I was working at a YMCA as a clerk, and uh, I'm going to take classes in this YMCA and get physically fit. It's going to be a whole new life. But I'm an alcoholic, and before the day's over, I'm drinking. And often it was as simple as this. I'd walk in the house after work, and there'd be a half a bottle of scotch sitting on the sink, and you and I both know it'd be pretty hard to quit with a half a bottle of scotch sitting here, so what I'm going to do is I'll drink this down, and tomorrow I'll quit. There'll be nothing, and I'll quit. But I'm an alcoholic. There's a problem with this theory, and I know you know what it is. (laughs) I'm an alcoholic, and as the level of that bottle goes down, I get nervous, and I'm calling the liquor store to deliver a new one. And tomorrow what I have is more or less a half a fifth of scotch, and I did it day after day. I, um... One night I called Alcoholics Anonymous. I was drunk. I don't know what triggered... Well. Presumably God had a hand in it, um, but I didn't know what triggered the notion at the time, and I called Alcoholics Anonymous, and a real nice man answered the phone and talked to me a long time, and he wanted to send some women to my house. I said, oh, no, I don't think I'm that bad, and he seemed to understand, and he said, do you think you could not drink tomorrow and go to a meeting tomorrow night? And I said, yes, and, and actually I doubt very much that I can not drink tomorrow because I drink every day, and I've tried to not drink tomorrow, and I can't do it, but he asked, could I do that, and I said, yes. So he told me where a meeting was in Santa Monica near where I lived, and um, we hung up. And you know, I continued to drink until I passed out. The next day, I um, I remembered the call and I remembered parts of the conversation, and I found the piece of paper where I'd written the address of the meeting hall. In, in the light of day, I thought I'd been a little premature about calling Alcoholics Anonymous. I was I was pretty sure I was too young to be an alcoholic, which is a pretty funny thing to say in AA today, you know, but. But I was one of the young people at the time. Um, I uh, but I found I didn't drink that day, and I found myself going to a meeting at 8:30 that night. Now, at 8:30 at night, I'm often already passed out, so I wasn't feeling very well at 8:30 that night when I got to that meeting because I didn't drink. You know, I went to uh, it was in the basement of a church in Santa Monica. I parked my car and I walked down these steps. I was so scared. I knew I wasn't gonna be able to, to do I knew I wasn't gonna be able to walk through that door, but somehow I did. And there was a man standing at the door who put out his hand and said, Hello, my name is Clint. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. And it made me feel welcome. It's I believe the single most important thing anybody does in a meeting. It's the first thing that happened to me in a meeting and it made me feel welcome. Uh, I went in the room, it's 828, you know, I didn't want to get there too early. I might have to talk to somebody and I cannot talk to you if I'm not drinking. I simply can't. So it's now I'm in the room. I shake his hand. I'm in the room, and I was 8:29 maybe, and there's maybe 250, 300 people at this meeting, and it might as well have been 30,000 people. I mean, I just, you know, couldn't believe how awful it was, and they're milling around like we do, kissing and talking and hugging, and um, a man came up out of the crowd and asked me if I was new, and I couldn't imagine how he knew that. Um, LAUGHTER acknowledged that I was and he got me a big book and a seat in the back of the room and it was a speaker meeting much like this one and the speaker that night was a man by the name of Norm A and I heard him. Uh, he drank like I drank. He, uh, We actually drank in one of the same places many years apart. He was a much older man than I but not that I had a thing against older men but whatever. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> I can't believe I said that. Uh, um, and I believe that he was sober. I mean, you could see that he was sober. And and he he was this happy, joyous guy. I mean, I could feel it clear in the back of the room. It was amazing. I, I think if, if you'd pinned me down after that meeting, I would have said, well, maybe I can stay sober if I do whatever it is you're doing here. But I can never feel the way that guy feels. You can't get from here to there. But I, but I think I got just a little bit of hope that night. When the meeting was over, we all stood up and held hands and said the Lord's Prayer. And at the end of the prayer, when they said, keep coming back, these two nice people on either side of me squeezed my hands. I thought that was the nicest thing. I did not know the whole room was doing that. I thought it was just these two people. <laughs> I was very touched. Uh, but the minute they dropped my hands, I was out the door. I can't stay and chat with you. I can't chat. I don't chat. And so, I, But I had the big book. And I went home, and I, um, I stayed up most of that night reading it. And I remember thinking... I liked the meeting. I liked that guy, Norm. You know, I liked what was happening there. I thought, I'm going to go to AA. I'm going to go every Saturday night and be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had heard you say at that meeting, you should go to a lot of meetings. And I thought every Saturday sounded like it would be a lot. Um, so I, so I'm planning to go next Saturday. Um, I stayed sober till Friday, Saturday to Friday. I didn't drink. I had been, had not been that long without a drink in years and years. And I, I remember every day thinking, wow, AA really works. This is great. And then on Friday I was drunk, and and uh, I couldn't believe it. I went back to the meeting Saturday. I raised my hand for being under a week of sobriety again, and I got phone numbers. I had gotten phone numbers the first night, but of course I didn't call them. I don't know you. Why? How would I call you? What would I say? I mean, seriously? But one of these women said, you know, most of us have found um, reaching out to be kind of helpful. You might want to actually call one of these numbers. So I called that one. I drank a couple more days, and then I called her. And I was drunk when I called her. And she said, you might think about getting a sponsor. You don't seem to be doing really great on your own. And most of us have found sponsors to be pretty helpful. And I said, well, what's, what's a sponsor? How do I get one? And she said, I'll be your sponsor. Now, you know, her enthusiasm for that should have been a clue that, uh, I don't know, there. But I missed it, you know, so I said, oh, okay, and she said, what do I do? She said, meet me tomorrow night early before the meeting, and we'll talk. Bring your big book, and we'll talk about it. Tomorrow night was a Thursday. That's not meeting night, but I somehow sensed that I ought not to point that out to her, and so I met her the next night, and uh, that was August 28, 1975, and my life began. First thing she did is she took my big book and opened it to the front cover and told me to write that day's date, and I wrote that date, and she said, that's your sobriety date. I remember thinking I shouldn't have done it in ink, you know. But that's, I still have that big book. Um, the next thing she did is she took a meeting directory, and she circled a meeting for every night of the week. I stopped her about midweek, and I said, I, I'm a married woman. My husband's not happy I'm at this meeting tonight. Uh, I can't possibly go to one every night. It's completely out of the question. I can't do it. And she said, well, maybe you can do it with less, but not with me as your sponsor. She was very sweet that night. She never was again, but she was that night. She said, perhaps you can do it with less. She said, um, but if you want me to be your sponsor, I assume it's because you want what I have. And if you want what I have, I only know one way to get it, and that's to do what I do. And this is what I do. The miracle for me happened in that, in that conversation right there because I agreed to do what she was asking me to do. And I knew it was going to cause me a lot of trouble. And this is important if you're new. Um, I didn't agree happily, and I definitely didn't do it happily. I whined and cried for my entire first year at every meeting I went to. I thought I had the saddest life of anybody who ever set foot in Alcoholics Anonymous and I would tell it to anybody in the room who would pause long enough to listen. But I, but I did it. I started going to meetings every night and, um, uh, and I was right. My husband didn't like it. He thought that I was coming to Alcoholics Anonymous to meet men. Now, <clears throat> it's true that I'd been cheating on him all the years we'd been married. It's equally true that I had seen that there were men in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was not opposed to the idea of getting better acquainted with some of you. But none of the men in AA seemed to be interested in me, number one. And number two, it really made me mad that he was accusing me of something I'm not actually doing right at this minute, you know? (laughs) So I felt really sorry for myself. We fought all the time about AA. Uh, I I need to be clear, it sounds like AA is ruining my marriage. I mean, obviously my marriage was terrible. I was cheating on him. Uh, We had a terrible, we just now have a new topic, that's all, you know. So so I come home from work. Every every day is the same. I come home from work. We have this big fight about me going to the meeting. I get in the car. My sponsor told me to get to every meeting one hour early. Uh, I had early commitments like cookies or chairs or coffee things you do before the meeting and I was to get there do my commitment and an hour early and then shake hands with other people as they arrived ask them how they are as though I care and uh, get phone numbers of three women that I don't already have and then the next day in addition to calling my sponsor call those three women whose numbers I got last night and so I, you know we have the big fight I'm in the car driving to the meeting I'm sobbing hysterically um, I, and I'm thinking, you know, I'll go to your stupid meeting tonight because I'm already out of the house tonight, but this is the last time I'm going, this is too hard. I can't do this. If this is sobriety, you can have it. I'll go tonight. but That's it. And I'd get there and I'd, um, you know, slam the cookies around in the kitchen or whatever my job was. And, and then I'd work the room, you know, uh, hi, Teresa, how are you? And then she'd say something like, fine, Pat, how are you? And I'd tell her, how I was with great sobs and dramatic flourishes and till her eyes would glaze over and then hi pixie how are you (laughs) you know and eventually mercifully the meeting would start and we'd all get relief from me and uh you know uh by the time the meeting was over I would feel just enough better to get through the fight the next night to get to another meeting and I just kept coming back um When I was about three or four months sober, I learned the single most important thing I've learned in in all the years I've been sober, and that is this. I came to the meeting one night. I was working the room, as I just described, and uh, this guy, Larry G., asked me how I was, and I started to tell him, and he cut me off. He said, I don't want to listen to that. Why don't you go find a newcomer to talk to? Perhaps you'd feel better. And he pointed to a girl in the back of the room and said, that girl in the red dress is at her very first meeting. Why don't you just march over and say hello? I remember clearly thinking that I did not care if the girl in the red dress lived or died. I wish Larry would die. But I knew that if I didn't do it, he'd tell my sponsor. So this shouldn't take a moment, you know. I go over with this fine intention to help the newcomer. And I believe, if memory serves me correctly, I was still crying as I welcomed this woman to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't believe it. The girl who had 12-stepped her, who I knew, said, Oh, Pat, I'm so happy to see you. This is this girl's first meeting, and she had this big fight with her husband about coming to AA, and I've been waiting for you because I knew you were the exact right person to talk to her. And I'm thinking, you know how you have split-second thinking, like you're thinking two things at once. On the one hand, I'm thinking, no, I'm the worst person in the room. I fight with my husband every night about coming to a meeting. I have nothing of value to share here. i, I missed miss that I was sober. That was kind of valuable, but, you know, uh, just, no. Anybody in this room would be better to talk to her than me. But at the same time, I'm thinking... I'm standing in front of a girl at her very first meeting. I should try to be positive here. And I opened up my mouth and I heard myself say, keep coming back, it gets better a day at a time. Now I've just lied to a newcomer. (laughs) Seriously. But had a spiritual experience that night. There was a center aisle like this in the room. I I know I didn't talk to this girl more than 20 seconds. I completely incapable but I turned and I was walking back down that center aisle and I had this moment it's like God reached down and hit me on the head I don't know how else to describe this this experience I stopped dead in my tracks in this aisle and I realized it was the first time in that three or four months whatever it was that I was sober that I was at the meeting in that hour period of time from the time I hit the door of the meeting hall until the meeting actually starts and I wasn't crying and the reason i wasn't crying it was very clear to me that as clear to me that night is, as it is tonight the reason i wasn't crying is because for this brief little moment i thought about somebody else besides myself for a brief moment i tried to think of something positive to say to this girl who was newer than me and i felt better it turns out that when i'm thinking about you i can't be thinking about me at the same time and any time i'm not thinking about me i'm having a better day and so is everybody around me <laughs> Um, I would like to tell you that from that moment to this I've happily worked with others in life but that would be a lie but it worked then, it works today you know, it works, it absolutely works I um, got 12 things in my head I'm I'm trying to figure out which direction to go here Um, it was clear to me that the problems in this marriage were caused by my husband I mean, (laughs) I'm working this spiritual program now it can't be my fault I uh, wasn't exactly working a spiritual program at home, but nonetheless, I convinced myself that I was, and with an attitude like that, it was inevitable that I would meet a man at a meeting who looked really good to me. Actually, I'd met many, but one who looked back, and uh, I was about 10 months sober. The gentleman in question was about 10 minutes sober. I saw him when he came in the door the first night, and he had a Fu Manchu mustache, a shaved head. My heart started to pound. I leapt across some chairs to introduce myself to him, and my sponsor noticed, and you know, did that thing that sponsors do. And I went over there and she said, let's not forget, Pat, that you're a married woman. And I said, yeah, but I am so unhappy. She said, nonetheless, you're married. And as long as you're married, I expect you to act married. I said, I don't see this as a problem. I'll get divorced. And she said, no, we in Alcoholics Anonymous don't think it's a good idea to make major moves in our first year of sobriety. You just stay married and act married. Well, I was obsessed with this man. I know you understand obsession if you're in this room. Why would God get him sober in my home group if he didn't mean for us to be together? (laughs) I knew you'd understand. So we began, I now refer to this as the death dance. Uh, If you've been here a few months, you've you've either done this or you've seen it. Uh, It starts with the deep, meaningful glances across the room at each other, and then we're kind of brushing up against each other in the coffee line, and and then he's walking me to my car after the meeting. And then I'm parking further and further away from the meeting. And it's a little complicated to get together because I'm a married woman. Obviously, we're not going to my place. He's a newcomer. He does not have a place. But <laughs> we're pretty resourceful people. We can make anything happen. And I was working at the time at a record company in Hollywood. And he was com- very conveniently working in Hollywood as well at a porn bookstore you can't make this stuff up. You really can't. You know, I mean, seriously. So I arranged this long lunch hour at work one day for somebody to cover for me. And I, he didn't have a car either. So I picked him up at the bookstore and we went to a motel and let's just say got to know each other better. And I dropped him off at the, uh, at the hotel, at the bookstore later on that afternoon. I was driving back to my office and it occurred to me in the car that I was 10 months sober and I was living exactly the way I'd always lived. I was been, had been sitting in meetings for 10 months hearing you say pretty much every night that I was going to have to change everything about the way I'd been living my life or I was probably going to drink. And uh, I knew that day in the car that I was in a lot of trouble. And, and I didn't, I was, I'll tell you, in all the years I've been sober, that day is the closest I've been to picking up a drink. I, and I was terrified to tell my sponsor what I'd done. But I did tell her that night. And she said, You know, Pat, I don't think that you're a woman who can cheat on her husband and stay sober. You, don't, you didn't have to pick up a drink today to find that out, but you don't have to live that way anymore if you don't want to. Okay, I don't want to. Here's the truth of the matter. I've never wanted to live that way, drunk or sober. I've never felt good about living that way. But I, now I'm sober in AA, and I'm living that way still. I don't see how you're going to help me change. Here's what I did. If you're new or not new in this interest, you have to really pay close attention because this goes by really fast. Here's what I did. A day at a time, I stayed away from that guy. That's it. You wanted more, didn't you? <laughs> I did too. <laughs> but here's the thing. A day at a time, I stayed away from him. A day at a time, I didn't drive by that bookstore. A day at a time, I didn't call him. A day at a time, when he called me, I didn't take the call. I thought I should explain to him what was happening here, and fortunately ran that idea by my sponsor, and she said, oh, I think he'll get the idea. And, uh, and I really heard for the first time that line that is read in every single meeting I go to, half measures avail us nothing, and I knew for me this was going to be the big make it or break it, that for this alcoholic, this was going to be the thing that was, e- that was either going to send me out or keep me in, and so I did it 100% her way. The obsession, of course, eventually passed past they always do but the really good news and the part that I hadn't counted on is I don't live that way anymore you know I simply don't live that way anymore what a gift what an unbelievable gift um let's see uh my first sponsor drank when I was about a year and a half sober and I got a new sponsor right away and she was sober a long time and the first thing she said to me is you know I've watched you whine and complain about your husband and Uh, I want you a day at a time to uh, act as though you're a kind and loving wife. You owe a lot of amends to this guy. And the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is very clear on these difficult amends. It says right in the step, you can't go make direct amends when to do so might injure that person or others. That means pat. You cannot go home and confess infidelities that he doesn't know about. That is not making amends. That's creating a bigger mess. Um, She said, I think if you, uh, I don't know what's going to happen to your marriage. Maybe you're going to have to walk away from it at some point. But you're there today. And while you are there, I want you to act as though, pretend that you're a kind and loving wife. She gave me very specific things to do. I don't really have time to talk about them, but she gave me specific actions to take at home. I started watching couples in AA, how they treat each other. Um, some of it's great. Some of it's terrible. There's good and bad examples here. Excuse me, but I tried to take the good examples, you know, those actions home and, and practice them in my home and... and. Um, You know, a little time passed, and, and one night I was on my knees saying my prayers and thanking God for my sobriety, and I realized I was comfortable in that house with that husband. And it didn't happen that day. It had already happened. This is the biggest problem in my life, and I missed when it ended. I remember I got back down on my knees and I didn't wasn't even sure what I was feeling but I got back down on my knees that night and I thank God for whatever it was I was feeling and I said I believe God if you mean for me to stay married to this man I could do that and stay sober and have a good life thank you Not long after that we found out that he had cancer and uh he was sick for a year and a half and he did die It was a hard year but it uh, but it was the best year and a half of our marriage for sure for sure Um when he died I um Went to this little chapel and made some f- funeral arrangements and a couple hundred people from Alcoholics Anonymous took the afternoon off to be there. They did not know him, you know, but they came, of course, for me. And um, I realized sitting in that chapel that absolutely what well, my sponsor had promised me would happen if I just stayed and pretended to be a kind and loving wife, that I would make fully make my amends to him. And I knew that, that I had 100% made my amends to that man. I was so grateful that I had stayed when all of my best judgment said I should leave, you know. I'm so grateful that I was willing to listen to somebody else. I remember thinking, um, I don't know, I was going to say that day, but around that time, after, shortly after he died, that, uh, that that's like the payoff, so to speak, for doing the work. That's not even close. That is not even close to the payoff. After he died, I started uh, dating a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, we fell in love and got married. And... We had, um, whoa, I haven't gotten emotional about this in a while. We had um, almost 30 really great years together, and uh, he died a number of years ago, and and my heart broke. But here's the thing. We wouldn't have had those 30 years of great times together had I not learned the tools there with my former husband. You see what I mean about the payoff? God's vision for me is so much bigger than anything I can possibly ever imagine at any given moment. I'm so... Glad that I'm willing to follow direction when I don't see where it possibly could help. You know, I'm so glad that I've been willing to do that. Um, after Vince died, boy, he'd be upset that I gave him like a minute and a half there, if that. <laughs> <laughs> he used to say to me when he was alive, and I'd be talking to say, "You know, you gave your former husband way more time than you gave me in that talk." <laughs> I loved him so much. I really did. He used to sponsor Vince Bailey here many, many years ago when Vince was young and crazy. But I'm not going to tell stories. Uh, But anyway, um, a few years ago, so Vince died, and and, uh, I continued to work. And I I remember saying every day for a couple of years, boy, I wish I could afford to retire. wish I could afford to retire. And then one day it occurred to me, I have no idea if I can afford to retire or not. So I went and met with a financial planner who said, you can afford to retire. So I retired. And... uh, I moved out to Palm Desert and I, uh, got this little place and, and, uh, you know, settled into AA there and, and started creating this life and, and, uh, it's good. I like, I like being retired, I have to say, and I, and I like where I live and I, I like the meetings and, you know, a lot of good stuff is happening out there, um. I'll just tell one other little story, and then I'll sit down. Uh, I have my whole life been more or less a couch potato. I, I just am not much of an athlete or an exerciser. Or I have good intentions, but don't really follow through on anything. And, um, but when I, when I retired, and I had, of course, more time on my hands, I started taking little walks uh, a, a few days a week. Nothing, nothing to write home about, folks, you know, just little walks. And my friend Linda, who's a big, uh, major backpacker, said to me, Have you ever heard of the Camino de Santiago? And I said, No, I have not. And she said, Go home and Google it and then um tell me what you think. So I went home and Googled it and I called her up and I said, I'm so in, I wanna do this. For those of you who are not familiar, the Camino de Santiago is a spiritual pilgrimage in Spain. It's a five hundred mile walk, um done over well, some people do it in thirty days. That we had allowed forty five days for our we're old and you know, whatever. Um, but whatever. So she said to me, you know, you're going to have to train really hard before we do this. We set a date like a year from then. We'll do it next fall. She says, you're really going to have to train. I said, I know. And she said, okay, well, I'll help you train. It's great. So we go out the first day to, for my first training hike. It's uh, maybe two miles, relatively flat, little, it seemed, didn't seem flat to me. But now that I've hiked other places, I like, can see it was pretty flat. We get so we're almost back to the car. We're maybe from here to where our car is parked now. I can actually see the car, in fact, but I cannot take another step. I just can't. I mean, I'm dead. Uh, I sat on a rock and, I, and I'm hunched over and I, I'm sobbing, I believe. And I've drunk all my water, all of her water. You know, I'm just <laughs> like, I said. She said the car's right over there. Yeah, I know. I can't. She's also, let me just say, a great photographer, and she memorialized this moment. Um, (Laughter) I actually still have that particular picture hanging on my refrigerator because I love looking at it, um, because I love, you know, where it led. So anyway, we get, she finally drags me back to the car, and, and we're driving home, and I said, you're probably thinking you picked the wrong person to do this. She said, oh, you'll be fine. It's just your first day. You'll be great. She told me later, she thought, oh, my God, what have I done? This woman's never going to be able to do this. I trained hard. I can't even, I, I think about it now, I can hardly be, believe I did it. I trained hard, and, um... Little over two years ago, we went to Spain. Actually, you start in France. You start in uh, France. You hike over the Pyrenees Mountains the first two days, um, and then you're in Spain, and you hike all across northern Spain. And so we we did it, and uh, we started. And uh, the third day, the third day, we had been uh, we had done I don't know maybe 15 miles at that point, and we would stopped to rest and have a little something to eat by the trail, you know, and and we got you know invigorated and we got back up and started walking again and I said to her I feel so good right now I feel so great I can't believe I've just walked you know I've just hiked across the Pyrenees mountains and and now you know the hiking is 15 17 mile days and this is incredible I, I just I can't believe I'm doing this I love this so much about five minutes later I fell and it was over <laughs> Um, I fell on my face. I fell hard. I mean, I landed. I led with my face. And, uh, you know, uh, we still had another mile and a half or so to hike, which there's really no choice. You get up and you hike, you know, once we stopped the bleeding. And um, wound up in the emergency room in Pamplona. And uh, so the plan was, we had discussed before we left, that if anything happened or somebody didn't want to continue whatever. The other person was free to go on and nobody would be mad, you know, and so she, she said, I'm going to, I'm going to go on. Okay. So she got up, then we had checked into a hotel after we got out of the emergency room. So uh, she got up then early five the next morning and left. We cried, you know, and she left and took a taxi to back to this little village where we had, you know, got, had ended up and and started hiking and the thought occurred to her that she better call her husband and let him know that she was out there hiking alone before he, he read about it on Facebook and uh, so she called him and he said I'm so sorry but you have to come home too her niece had drowned that morning and so it turned out that we both came home together um, which it, for me is probably good because I don't speak Spanish and uh, I'd probably still be in that airport in Madrid I'm telling you it was <laughs> it was tough because she speaks Spanish and it was our but anyway so we came home, and, you know, all my friends were like, oh, I'm so sorry you didn't get your spiritual experience. The whole purpose of this trip is you hike to this cathedral in Santiago, and everybody has a spiritual experience. Everybody said, you didn't get your spiritual experience. And I said, yeah, I did. I did. I had that moment on the trail, you know, just before I fell. Spiritual, I've discovered or figured out that you can't um, plan a spiritual experience, you know. <laughs> They come when they come, or, and then they don't when they don't, and they come sometimes in odd ways. It is the single most fantastic thing I've ever done, you know, seriously. Um, I'm very happy I did it. I'd do it again even if I knew it was just going to end the way that it ended just because of, of that moment that, that I had, you know you know what I'm saying? If you're new, you don't have to walk 500 miles uh, to stay sober, but what you can do is anything you want to do, you know. You can be or do anything. you If you want to put the work in, you can do anything, you know, My life is so good. It is so full. I I wonder uh, how I had time to work, you know, because I I just have so much going on. If you're new, I want to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. It is the best thing that has ever happened to me. I am so happy to be here. Thank you.